Book Four, Chapter Twenty Six of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Four, Chapter Twenty Six. The next fortnight was a time of truce. Ellesmere neither read nor reasoned. He spent his days in the school, in the village, pottering about the Mile End cottages, or the new institute sometimes fishing, sometimes passing long summer hours on the commons with his club-boys, hunting the ponds for caddises, newts, and water-beetles, peering into the furze-bushes for second broods, or watching the sand-martins in the gravel-pits, and trudging home at night in the midst of an escort of enthusiasts, all of them with pockets as full and miry as his own, to deposit the treasures of the day in the club-room. Once more the rector, though physically perhaps less ardent than of yore, was the life of the party and a certain awe and strangeness which had developed in his boy's minds towards him during the last few weeks passed away. It was curious that in these days he would neither sit nor walk alone if he could help it. Catherine, or a stray parishioner, was almost always with him. All the while, vaguely, in the depths of consciousness, there was the knowledge that behind this piece of quiet water on which his life was now sailing there lay storm and darkness and that in front loomed fresh possibilities of tempest. He knew, in a way, that it was a treacherous peace which had overtaken him. And yet it was peace. The pressure exerted by the will had temporarily given way, and the deepest forces of the man's being had reasserted themselves. He could feel and love and pray again, and Catherine, seeing the old glow in the eyes, the old spring in the step, made the whole of life one thank-offering. On the evening following that moment of reaction in the Muirwell Library, Robert had written to the squire. His letter had been practically a withdrawal from the correspondence. "'I find,' he wrote, "'that I have been spending too much time and energy lately on these critical matters. It seems to me that my work as a clergyman has suffered. Nor can I deny that your book and your letters have been to me a source of great trouble of mind. My heart is where it was, but my head is often confused.' Let controversy rest a while. My wife says I want a holiday. I think so myself, and we are off in three weeks. Not, however, I hope, before we have welcomed you home again, and got you to open the new institute, which is already dazzling the eyes of the village by its size and splendour, and the white paint that Harris the Builder has been lavishing upon it. Ten days later, rather earlier than was expected, the squire and Mrs. Darcy were at home again. Robert re-entered the great house the morning after their arrival with a strange reluctance. Its glow and magnificence, the warm perfumed air of the hall, brought back a sense of old oppressions, and he walked down the passage to the library with a sinking heart. There he found the squire, busy as usual, with one of those fresh cargoes of books which always accompanied him on any homeward journey. He was more brown, more wrinkled, more shrunken more full of forth, of harsh epigram, of grim anecdote, than ever. Robert sat on the edge of the table, laughing over his stories of French Orientalists, or Roman cardinals, or modern Greek professors, enjoying the impartial sarcasm which one of the greatest of savants was always ready to pour out upon his brethren of the craft. The squire, however, was never genial for a moment during the interview. He did not mention his book, nor Ellesmere's letter. But Ellesmere suspected in him a good deal of suppressed irritability, and, as after a while he abruptly ceased to talk, the visit grew difficult. 
the rector walked home feeling restless and depressed. The mind had begun to work again. It was only by a great effort that he could turn his thoughts from the squire and all that the squire had meant to him during the past year, and so woo back to himself the shy bird of peace. Mr. Wendover watched the door close behind him, and then went back to his work with a gesture of impatience. "'Once a priest, always a priest. What a fool I was to forget it. You think you make an impression on the mystic, and at the bottom there is always something which defies you and common sense. Two and do do not and shall not make four, he said to himself, in a mincing voice of angry sarcasm. It would give me too much pain that they should. Well, and so I suppose what might have been a rational friendship will go by the board like everything else. What can make the man shilly-shally in this way? He is convinced already, as he knows. Those later letters were conclusive. His living, perhaps, and his work. Not for the money's sake. There never was a more incredibly disinterested person born. But his work? Well, who is to hinder his work? Will he be the first parson in the Church of England who looks after the poor and holds his tongue? If you can't speak your mind, it is something, at any rate, to possess one. Nine-tenths of the clergy be without the appendage. But Elsmere, pshaw, he would go muddling on to the end of the chapter. The squire, indeed, was like a hunter whose prey escapes him at the very moment of capture, and there grew on him a mocking, aggressive mood which Elsmere often found hard to bear. One natural symptom of it was his renewed churlishness as to all local matters. Elsmere, one afternoon, spent an hour in trying to persuade him to open the new institute. "'What on earth do you want me for?' inquired Mr. Wendover, standing before the fire in the library, the Medusa head peering over his shoulder. "'You know perfectly well that all the gentry about here—I suppose you will have some of them—regard me as an old reprobate, and the poor people, I imagine, as a kind of ogre. To me it doesn't matter a tuppenny damn—I apologise, it was the Duke of Wellington's favourite standard of value— but I can't see what good it could do to either you or the village under the circumstances that I should stand on my head for the popular edification. Elsmere, however, merely stood his ground, arguing and bantering, till the squire grudgingly gave way. This time, after he departed, Mr. Wendover, instead of going to his work, still stood gloomily ruminating in front of the fire. His frowning eyes wandered round the great room before him. For the first time he was conscious that now, as soon as the charm of Elsmere's presence was withdrawn, his working hours were doubly solitary, that his loneliness weighed upon him more, and that it mattered to him appreciably whether that young man went or stayed. The stirring of a new sensation, however, unparalleled since the brief days when even Roger Wendover had his friends and his attractions like other men, was soon lost in renewed chafing at Elsmere's absurdities. The squire had been at first perfectly content, so he told himself, to limit the field of their intercourse, and would have been content to go on doing so. But Elsmere himself had invited freedom of speech between them. "'I would have given him my best,' Mr. Wendover reflected impatiently. "'I could have handed on to him all I shall never use, and he might use admirably. And now he might as well be on the terms we were to begin with, for all the good I get out of him, or he out of me. Clearly nothing but cowardice.' He cannot face the intellectual challenge, and he must, I suppose, dread lest it should affect his work. Good God, what nonsense! As if any one inquired what an English parson believed nowadays, so long as he performs all the usual antics decently. And meanwhile it never occurred to the squire that Elsmere had a wife, and a pious one. 
Catherine had been dropped out of his calculation as to Ellesmere's future at a very early stage. The following afternoon, Robert, coming home from a round, found Catherine out, and a note awaiting him from the hall. "'Can you and Mrs. Ellesmere come in to tea?' wrote the squire. "'Madame de Netteville is here, and one or two others.' Robert grumbled a good deal, looked for Catherine to devise an excuse for him, could not find her, and at last reluctantly set out alone. He was tired, and his mood was heavy. As he trudged through the park, he never once noticed the soft, sun-flooded distance, the shining loops of the river, the feeding deer, or any of those natural witcheries to which eye and sense were generally so responsive. The labourers going home, the children, with aprons full of crab-apples and lips dyed by the first blackberries who passed him, got but an absent smile or salute from the rector. The interval of exultation and recoil was over. The ship of the mind was once more labouring in alien and dreary seas. He roused himself to remember that he had been curious to see Madame de Netteville. She was an old friend of the squire's, the holder of a London salon, much more exquisite and select than anything Lady Charlotte could show. "'She had the same thing in Paris before the war,' the squire explained. "'Renan gave me a card to her. Extraordinary woman. No particular originality, but one of the best persons to consult about ideas, like Joubert's Madame de Beaumont, I ever saw. Receptiveness itself. A beauty, too, or was once, and a bit of a sphinx, which adds to the attraction. Mystery becomes a woman vastly. One suspects her of ventures just enough to find her society doubly piquant. Vincent directed him to the upper terrace, whither tea had been taken. This terrace, which was one of the features of Muirwell, occupied the top of the yew-clothed hill on which the library looked out. Evelyn himself had planned it. Along its upper side ran one of the most beautiful of old walls, broken by niches and statues, tapestried with roses and honeysuckle, an opening in the centre to reveal Evelyn's daring conceit of all, a semicircular space holding a fountain and leading to a grotto. The grotto had been scooped out of the hill, it was peopled with dim figures of fauns and nymphs which showed white amid its moist greenery, and in front a marble silence drooped over the fountain, which held gold and silver fish in a singularly clear water. Outside ran the long stretch of level turf, edged with a jewelled rim of flowers, and as the hill fell steeply underneath, the terrace was like a high green platform raised into air, in order that a Wendover might see his domain which from thence lay for miles spread out before him. Here, beside the fountain, were gathered the squire, Mrs. Darcy, Madame de Netteville, and two unknown men. One of them was introduced to Ellesmere as Mr. Spooner, and recognised by him as a fellow of the Royal Society, a famous mathematician, sceptic, bon vivant, and sayer of good things. The other was a young liberal Catholic, the author of a remarkable collection of essays on medieval subjects, in which the squire, treating the man's opinions, of course, as of no account, had instantly recognised the note of the true scholar. A pale, small, hectic creature, possessed of that restless energy of mind which often goes with the heightened temperature of consumption. Robert took a seat by Madame de Netteville, whose appearance was picturesqueness itself. Her dress, a skilful mixture of black and creamy yellow, lay about her in folds, as soft, as carelessly effective as her manner. Her plumed hat shadowed a face which was no longer young in such a way as to hide all the lines possible, 
while the half-light brought admirably out the rich, dark smoothness of the tints, the black lustre of the eyes. A delicate blue-veined hand lay upon her knee, and Robert was conscious after ten minutes or so that all her movements, which seemed at first merely slow and languid, were in reality singularly full of decision and purpose. She was not easy to talk to on a first acquaintance. Robert felt that she was studying him, and was not so much at his ease as usual, partly owing to fatigue and mental worry. She asked him little abrupt questions about the neighbourhood, his parish, his work, in a soft tone which had, however, a distinct aloofness, even hauteur. His answers, on the other hand, were often a trifle reckless and off-hand. He was in a mood to be impatient with the mundane's languid inquiries into clerical work, and it seemed to him the squire's description had been overdone. "'So you try to civilise your peasants?' she said at last. "'Does he succeed? Is it worth while?' "'That depends upon your general ideas of what is worth while,' he answered, smiling. "'Oh, everything is worth while that passes the time,' she said hurriedly. "'The clergy of the old regime went through life half asleep. That was their way of passing it. Your way, being a modern, is to bustle and try experiments.' Her eyes, half-closed but nonetheless provocative, ran over Ellesmere's keen face and pliant frame. An atmosphere of intellectual and social assumption enwrapped her, which annoyed Robert in much the same way as Langham's philosophical airs were wont to do. He was drawn without knowing it into a match of wits, wherein his strokes, if they lacked the finish and subtlety of hers, showed certainly no lack of sharpness or mental resource. Madame de Netville's tone insensibly changed, her manner quickened, her great eyes gradually unclosed. Suddenly, as they were in the middle of a skirmish as to the reality of influence, Madame de Netfield, paradoxically maintaining that no human being had ever really converted, transformed, or convinced another, the voice of young Wishart, shrill and tremulous, rose above the general level of talk. "'I'm quite ready. I'm not the least afraid of a definition. Theology is organised knowledge in the field of religion, a science like any other science.' Leaning forward with his hands round his knees, and speaking with the most elegant and good-humoured sang-froid imaginable. The science of the world's ghosts! I cannot imagine any more fascinating. Well, said Madame de Netfield to Robert, with a deep breath, that was a remark to have hurled at you all at once out of doors on a summer's afternoon. Uh, Mr. Spooner, she said, raising her voice, don't play the heretic here. There's no fun in it. There are too many with you. I did not begin it, my dear madam, and your reproach is unjust. On one side of me, Archbishop's Manning's Fidus Achaites, and the speaker took off his large straw hat and gracefully waved it, first to the right, then to the left. On the other, the rector of the parish. Cannon to right of me, cannon to left of me. I submit my courage is unimpeachable. He spoke with the smiling courtesy as excessive as his silky moustache, his long straw-coloured beard, and his Panama hat. Madame de Netville surveyed him with cool, critical eyes. Robert smiled slightly, acknowledged the bow, but did not speak. Mr. Wishart evidently took no heed of anything but his own thoughts. He sat bolt upright with shining, excited eyes. "'Ah, I remember that article of yours in the fortnightly. How you sceptics miss the point!' And out came a stream of argument and denunciation, which had probably lain lava-hot at the heart of the young convert for years, waiting for such a moment as this, when he had before him at close quarters two of the most famous antagonists of his faith. 
The outburst was striking, but certainly unpardonably ill-timed. Madame de Netville retreated into herself with a shrug. Robert, in whom a sore nerve had been set jarring, did his utmost to begin his talk with her again. In vain, for the squire struck in. He'd been sitting huddled together, his cynical eyes wandering from Wishart to Ellesmere, when suddenly some extravagant remark of the young Catholic, and Robert's effort to edge away from the conversation, caught his attention at the same moment. His face hardened, and in his nasal voice he dealt a swift epigram at Mr. Wishart, which for the moment left the young disputant floundering. But only for the moment. In another minute or two the argument, begun so casually, had developed into a serious trial of strength, in which the squire and young Wishart took the chief parts, while Mr. Spooner threw in a laugh and a sarcasm here and there. And as long as Mr. Wendover talked, Madame de Netteville listened. Robert's restless repulsion to the whole incident, his passionate wish to escape from these phrases and illustrations and turns of argument which were all so wearisomely stale and familiar to him, found no support in her. Mrs. Darcy dared not second his attempts at chat, for Mr. Wendover, on the rare occasions when he held forth, was accustomed to be listened to, and Ellesmere was of too sensitive a social fibre to break up the party by an abrupt exit, which could only have been interpreted in one way. So he stayed, and perforce listened, but in complete silence. None of Mr. Wendover's sight-hits touched him. Only as the talk went on, the rector in the background got paler and paler. His eyes, as they passed from the mobile face of the Catholic convert, already, for those who knew, marked with the signs of death, to the bronzed visage of the squire, grew duller, more instinct with a slowly dawning despair. Half an hour later he was once more on the road leading to the park gate. He had a vague memory that at parting the squire had shown him the cordiality of one suddenly anxious to apologise by manner, if not by word. Otherwise everything was forgotten. He was only anxious, half-dazed as he was, to make out wherein lay the vital difference between his present self and the Ellesmere who had passed along that road an hour before. He had heard a conversation on religious topics, wherein nothing was new to him, nothing affected him intellectually at all. What was there in that to break the spring of life like this? He stood still, heavily trying to understand himself. Then gradually it became clear to him. A month ago every word of that hectic young pleader for Christ and the Christian certainties would have roused in him a leaping, passionate sympathy, the heart's yearning assent even when the intellect was most perplexed. Now that inmost strand had given way. Suddenly the disintegrating force he had been so pitifully, so blindly holding at bay, had penetrated once for all into the sanctuary. What had happened to him had been the first real failure of feeling, the first treachery of the heart. Wishart's hopes and hatreds and sublime defiances of man's petty faculties had aroused in him no echo, no response. His soul had been dead within him. As he gained the shelter of the wooded lane beyond the gate, it seemed to Robert that he was going through, once more, that old fierce temptation of Bunyan's. For after the Lord had in this manner thus graciously delivered me, and had set me down so sweetly in the faith of his holy gospel, and had given me such strong consolation and blessed evidence from heaven, touching my interest in his love through Christ, the tempter came upon me again, 
and that with a more grievous and dreadful temptation than before, and that was to sell and part with this most blessed Christ, to exchange him for the things of life, for anything. The temptation lay upon me for the space of a year, and did follow me so continually that I was not rid of it one day in a month, no, not sometimes one hour at many days together, for it did always, in almost whatever I thought, intermix itself therewith in some sort that I could neither eat my food, stoop for a pin, chop a stick, or cast mine eyes to look on this or that, but still the temptation would come, sell Christ for this, or sell Christ for that, sell him, sell him. Was this what lay before the minister of God now in this silver obscura of life, the selling of the master, of the love so sweet, the unction spiritual, for an intellectual satisfaction, the ravaging of all the fair places of the heart by an intellectual need? And still, through all the despair, all the revolt, all the pain, which made the summer air a darkness, and closed every sense in him to the evening beauty, he felt the irresistible march and pressure of the new instincts, the new forces, which life and thought had been calling into being. The words of St. Augustine, which he had read to Catherine, taken in a strange new sense, came back to him. Commend to the keeping of the truth whatever the truth hath given thee, and thou shalt lose nothing. Was it the summons of truth which was rending the whole nature in this way? Robert stood still, and with his hands locked behind him, and his face turned like the face of a blind man towards a world of which it saw nothing, went through a desperate catechism of himself. Do I believe in God? Surely, surely. Though he slay me, yet would I trust in him? Do I believe in Christ? Yes, in the teacher, the martyr, the symbol to us Westerns of all things heavenly and abiding, the image and pledge of the invisible life of the Spirit, with all my soul and all my mind. But in the man-God, the word from eternity, in a wonder-working Christ, in a risen and ascended Jesus, in the living intercessor and mediator for the lives of his doomed brethren? He waited, conscious that it was the crisis of his history, and there rose in him, as though articulated one by one by an audible voice, words of irrevocable meaning. Every human soul in which the voice of God makes itself felt enjoys, equally with Jesus of Nazareth, the divine sonship, and miracles do not happen. It was done. He felt for the moment as Bunyan did after his lesser defeat. Now was the battle won, and down fell I as a bird that is shot from the top of a tree into great guilt and fearful despair. Thus, getting out of my bed, I went moping in the field. But God knows, with as heavy an heart as mortal man, I think, could bear, where for the space of two hours I was like a man bereft of life. All these years of happy spiritual certainty, of rejoicing oneness with Christ, to end in this wreck and loss. Was not this indeed il gran rifiuto, the greatest of which human daring is capable? The lane darkened round him. Not a soul was in sight. The only sounds were the sounds of a gently breathing nature, sounds of birds and swaying branches and intermittent gusts of air rustling through the gorse and the drifts of last year's leaves in the wood beside him. He moved mechanically onward, and presently, after the first flutter of desolate terror had passed away, with a new inrushing sense which seemed to him a sense of liberty, of infinite expansion. 
Suddenly the trees before him thinned. The ground sloped away, and there to the left, on the westernmost edge of the hill, lay the square stone rectory. Its windows opened to the evening coolness, a white flutter of pigeons round the dovecote on the side-lawn, the gold of the August wheat in the great cornfield showing against the heavy girdle of oakwood. Robert stood gazing at it. The home consecrated by love, by effort, by faith. The high alternations of intellectual and spiritual debate, the strange emerging sense of deliverance, gave way to a most bitter human pang of misery. Oh, God! My wife! My work! There was a sound of a voice calling, Catherine's voice calling for him. He leant against the gate of the wood-path, struggling sternly with himself. This was no simple matter of his own intellectual consistency or happiness. Another's whole life was concerned. Any precipitate speech or hasty action would be a crime. A man is bound above all things to protect those who depend on him from his own immature or revocable impulses. Not a word yet, till this sense of convulsion and upheaval had passed away, and the mind was once more its own master. He opened the gate and went towards her. She was turning along the path, looking out for him, one delicate hand gathering up her long evening dress, that very same black brocade she had worn in the old days at Burwood, the other playing with her dandied infant puppy who was leaping beside her. As she caught sight of him, there was the flashing smile, the hurrying step, and he felt he could but just drag himself to meet her. "'Robert, how long you have been! I thought you must have stayed to dinner after all.' "'And how tired you seem!' "'I had a long walk,' he said, catching her hand, as it slipped itself under his arm, and clinging to it as though to a support. "'And I am tired. There is no use whatever in denying it.' His voice was light, but if it had not been so dark, she must have been startled by his face. As they went on towards the house, however, she scolding him for overwalking, he won his battle with himself. He went through the evening so that even Catherine's jealous eyes saw nothing but extra fatigue. In the most desperate straits of life, love is still the fountain of all endurance, and if ever a man loved, it was Robert Ellesmere. But that night, as he lay sleepless in their quiet room, with the window open to the stars and to the rising gusts of wind, which blew the petals of the cluster rose outside in drifts of fair-weather snow onto the window-sill, he went through an agony which no words can adequately describe. He must, of course, give up his living and his orders. His standards and judgments had always been simple and plain in these respects. In other men it might be right and possible that they should live on in the ministry of the Church, doing the humane and charitable work of the Church, while refusing assent to the intellectual and dogmatic framework on which the Church system rests. But for himself, it would be neither right nor wrong, but simply impossible. He did not argue or reason about it. There was a favourite axiom of Mr. Gray's which had become part of his pupil's spiritual endowment, and which was perpetually present to him at this crisis of his life, in the spirit, if not in the letter. Conviction is the conscience of the mind. And with this intellectual conscience, he was no more capable of trifling than with the moral conscience. The night passed away. How the rare intermittent sounds impressed themselves upon him! The stir of the child's waking soon after midnight in the room overhead, 
the cry of the owls on the oakwood, the purring of the night-jars on the common, the morning chatter of the swallows round the eaves. With the first invasion of the dawn, Robert raised himself and looked at Catherine. She was sleeping with that light, sound sleep which belongs to health of body and mind, one hand under her face, the other stretched out in soft relaxation beside her. Her husband hung over her in a bewilderment of feeling. Before him passed all sorts of incoherent pictures of the future. The mind was caught by all manner of incongruous details in that saddest uprooting which lay before him. How her sleep, her ignorance, reproached him. He thought of the wreck of all her pure ambitions, for him, for their common work, for the people that she had come to love. The ruin of her life of charity and tender usefulness, the darkening of all her hopes, the shaking of all her trust. Two years of devotion, of exquisite self-surrender, had brought her to this. It was for this he had lured her from the shelter of her hills, for this she had opened to him all her sweet stores of faith all the deepest springs of her womanhood. Oh, how she must suffer! The thought of it and his own helplessness wrung his heart. How could he keep her love through it all? There was an unspeakable dread mingled with his grief, his remorse. It had been there for months. In her eyes would not only pain, but sin, divide them? Could he possibly prevent her whole relation to him from altering and dwindling? It was to be the problem of his remaining life. With a great cry of the soul to that God it yearned and felt for through all the darkness and ruin which encompassed it, he laid his hand on hers with the timidest passing touch. Catherine, I will make amends. My wife, I will make amends. End of Book Four, Chapter Twenty Six